you know, I think a lot of VCs like to say, oh, we, we saw 3,000 investments a year and we found like the three that we wanted. I hate that. You know, I don't want to work that hard. Yeah. I want to see 500 <laughs> investments. I don't want to be a machine gun. I don't want to be an Uzi. I want to be a sniper. Yeah. I want to pick and choose what we go after very carefully and then just be incredibly discerning in what we do. Welcome to Billion Dollar Moves, the show for the top founders, funders, and execs making billion dollar moves that are shaping our future. From the growing pains of a unicorn journey to IPO, the question of impact, purpose, and returns, we go real deep in the world of venture and business. I'm your host, Sarah Chen Spellings. Before we hop in here, I have a quick favor to ask you. Smash that follow button wherever you're tuning in from. This way, you'd be the first to know of new episodes that drop. And of course, please tell your friends so we can amplify more stories built on grit in the U.S. and Asia venture ecosystem, and that we can all keep making billion-dollar moves together. Now let's get started. Now hold that thought. Finding a service solution that helps you keep customers happy can feel impossible, like trying to remember the name of that guy you literally just met at a networking event. HubSpot's all-new service hub can help with their service solution part at least. It brings service and success together on one powerful platform. With an AI-powered help desk and chatbot to help you handle your frontline tickets so you can scale support and drive retention and revenue. We love the sound of those things. Visit HubSpot.com service to learn more. Hey, Paul. Good evening. Good to see you. How are you? I'm doing great. It's uh, it's always fantastic to get a chance to talk to you, Sarah. Yes, Paul. And I feel like we've not had too much opportunities in, in the recent years, but I was just thinking about how we connected. And it was really when you and I were deep in the corporate venturing space. Yeah, no, I think it was at a conference and we both mm-hmm. each represented our parent corporate companies talking about CVC at a time when it was still very new in Southeast Asia. Yeah, absolutely. So it's it's really crazy how things have changed uh, in Southeast Asia. And we were talking a little bit about that in the prelude. But before we dive deep into everything that, you know, you've done in the different chapters of your life from, you know, being at some of the big names in, in America and, and bringing that to Asia to running a hundred million CVC fund and then going into ESG, gender, so many elements that I want to cover today. But let's get started with a little bit of context. Who is Paul Ark? Oh, yeah, no, that's that, that's a bit of a meandering story. But yeah, no, so I, you know, I am Thai Chinese American. So I, I try to emphasize that because, you know, I, I'm one of those sort of, it's not even a two culture kid. It's like a multicultural kid. You know, my, my grandparents had emigrated from South China to Thailand when they were young adult. And then my parents had emigrated mm-hmm. from uh, Thailand to New Jersey when they were young adults. And then, you know, I grew up in New Jersey, but, uh, you know, I was born in New Jersey, but I actually grew up in California. And then I actually traced my steps back to Asia as a young adult. So, you know, after having gone through, you know, high school, university, a brief stint mm. in law school before I said being a lawyer is a big mistake. You know, I, I moved back to Asia and became mm. a banker, you know, not a particularly you know, unique career, but definitely a very unique region being a banker in Southeast Asia, you know, in the 90s, at the height of, you know, the big Asian boom, and then ultimately the Asian financial crisis. So I, I actually started out uh, in a rather conventional career as a banker for 10 years. I, I did banking, 
uh, went back to business school uh, in Chicago, did a brief stint in tech in Silicon Valley in the late 90s, back when everyone wanted to go to a dot com. So at the time, it was all the rage, all the, you know, I think consulting companies, investment banks were starved for talent because everyone wanted to work for a dot com. So I, you know, I did that for a bit and decided I actually missed investment banking. So, you know, that, that was, you know, yeah, if I may, you know, this, uh, we, we have a lot of two culture, three culture kids uh, that, that tune in, right? And I think this is an interesting moment as well in America mm. with, um, you know, a lot of Asians coming to their identity and, and really accepting their heritage. And I have many guests who are at the intersection of US and Asia, which is where this is exciting. And I'd love to hear from you. I know it's been a while, but when you were a young adult, uh, you know, growing up in America and then realizing uh, who you wanted to become, how did you make that decision to say, OK, um, I think I'm going to build my career in Asia? <laughs> yeah, I, I have to laugh because I don't think at, at that point I even knew what I wanted to become. I dropped out mm. of law school school in the early mid 90s in the middle of a statewide recession. So, you know, it, it wasn't so much that I had this deep yearning to get back into my Thai roots. I was just desperate for a job. So 94, right. you know, the market in California was horrible. Uh, the financial markets in Southeast Asia were booming. So, you know, I, I think it was just out of sheer desperation for a job that I decided to, I, I put everything in storage, sold my car, bought a one-way ticket to Bangkok and wound up in banking. Uh, so I would say that, you know, I started to come to know my roots and understand, you know, my, my the Asian side, you know, of my upbringing just by virtue of getting a job in Asia. So it was a bit, you know, less directed and a bit more accidental. Yeah. And you haven't turned back since. I mean, you, you've built really an interesting career. And, and, you know, you're one of my friends that has really interesting, I would say, pivots in, in some way, career pivots. I mean, you've done so much in, in your career. And I love to hear a little bit. I mean, you started in banking. I guess that was the expectation of what was a good paycheck and the expectation of success in some ways. Is that right at that time? Yeah, you know, it's it's always a thing where, you, you know, I, I think when, when people kind of get a sense of the breadth of my career, because, you know, as I mentioned, I'd spent a lot of time in investment banking and then actually moved into retail. So I was actually working for retail brands mm -hmm. uh, for a number of years and doing some cool stuff around Asia and China. And then just these random pivots that, you know, where I found myself in venture capital. And I get a lot of questions about, oh, you know, what was the planning around that or how do you execute on that career <laughs> shift? And I, I say that, you know, you make it sound like I have this master plan and I'm, you know, I'm the master of my destiny. And, and to be frank, you know, I, I just go with the flow. I think mm. every really awesome job I've had in my life was, you know, pure serendipity. You know, it's just being in the right place at the right time and, and you know, grabbing that wave. Uh, when it hits, to use yeah. a surf analogy, mm. you know, so I mean, I, I think for those that will tune in who are old enough to remember Forrest Gump, you know, I tell people I'm kind of the Forrest Gump of Asia. I just sit there and stuff <laughs> happens and I'm I am the victim of incredibly great luck. Uh. You know, I, I, I don't think there is any forethought or planning. It's just I always recognized a great opportunity when it came along and I didn't hesitate to, you know, I mean, you call it a pivot. It's me just saying, just you know it. what, I may as well just jump ship and, you know, I've had enough of this job. That sounds yeah. really interesting. I'll give it a try. And so, you know, a lot of times it's these really yeah. weird lateral moves into industries that I have no previous background. And mm. I just land in them and I learn a ton and I do some really, I get to work on some really cool things. 
And then it just leads me to the next random pivot that comes along a few years later. So I know you're you're always, you know, one who believes in I think I, many of us do believe, right? When, after a certain point, you you put less, I guess, prominence to your own effort. Of course, it matters, but also a great deal of luck. I think we, we come to realize that as we mature. For you, you know, given your upbringing, what was it that gave you that openness of wanting to try? And I think one thing that really stands out uh, to me about you is your insatiable curiosity without hmm. fear, without hesitation. I mean, I will say a lot of women that I work with, right, uh, they spent their whole, I don't know, a decade in, in a certain career and even making that leap into something different. Like you, it it doesn't come second nature to them. It's almost like, wait, this is the right choice. What's the opportunity cost here? So, hmm. I mean, it sounds like you were just like rolling with it, but surely there must be something in, in your way of upbringing that allowed you to be more, I guess, open to all these opportunities. Oh, you know, strangely, no. I mean, I think my upbringing is probably just as conventional and conservative as any Asian kid, whether it was an Asian in Asia or Asia in Western markets. You know, you, you grow up with tiger parents that want you to be, you know, a doctor, lawyer, engineer, you know, whatever white collar profession that you know, garners the most respect, you know, and I, I think even that first move to Thailand, you know, was, I was just incredibly mm -hmm. apprehensive. I was fearful. I didn't know anyone in Thailand at the time, other than my immediate family or my extended family. It, it was done out of sheer necessity and desperation to launch a career. But, you know, I'll say that over the years, I've sort of developed, you know, that level of curiosity. So, you know, I, I would probably say, you know, dropping out of law school and buying a one-way mm. ticket to Asia was the scariest thing I'd ever done. But it was that turning point because once I landed in Asia, once I landed a job, I realized that, you know, when you take that big leap of faith, you know, what's waiting for you on the other side is not necessarily a bad thing. And I think every extreme career move, you know, because I've spent a lot of time leaving jobs before I have something lined up, you know, right after. And that, that's scary for a lot yeah. of people. You know, it, it was scary for me at mm -hmm. one point, but I've done it so many times that I realized that, you know, oh, this is really not as scary as it seems now that I'm, you know, on that other side. And I think I've learned yeah. over the years that it's really, really hard to completely screw up your career. You know, I've, I've made mistakes. <laughs> I've done some dumb things, but literally like, right. you know, and, and, and the funny thing is if we look at, you know, the markets today, it's like, you see, you know, these entrepreneurs that, you know, completely, you know, bring down a multi-billion dollar company. And then two right. years later, they'll receive a big check from some prestigious Silicon Valley VC fund. So, you know, it's short of like literally murdering mm -hmm. someone and going to prison. It's almost impossible to irrevocably ruin your career. And I think once you start to realize that, that, you know, no matter what circumstance you leave a job, that it'll eventually be okay, that is just incredibly mm. emotionally and psychologically liberating. You know, you it's it's yeah. easy to be curious once you overcome that fear that the unknown is not that scary. And and I think that's just the way my career developed over the last, you know, twenty, thirty years. Yeah. And I mean, if, if I may, um, a couple of points there, which I will want to come back to a little bit later, one about failure and basically being a phoenix rising from the ashes. I think that applies to some entrepreneurs, maybe not to most, right? And that, that leads into what we're going to talk about a little bit later. But the other point about, you know, leaving before uh, you have a plan, is this 
from a point of privilege that some may not have? It, it is, you know, I mean, and I, I think that's, that's the hard thing. You know, I, I get that, you know, if you have a spouse, you know, even if it's a working spouse, and it was, but especially if your spouse isn't working, uh, you have kids, you have mortgage, you have student loans, you know, it's, it's not that easy to just pick up and go, you know, you might have a nest egg, you might have some savings that you can draw on. But, you know, I, I do come from a point of privilege in the sense that, you know, not that I have a privileged background, but, you know, I have the luxury not having to worry about a lot of financial burdens that other people might. You know, my mm-hmm. wife and I are both, you know, working professionals. Uh, you know, we don't have children. We chose not to have kids. You know, I think about 15 years into our marriage that, you know, I think we just realized that we love working too much. Uh, but I think we also love the lifestyle mm. of not having that kind of yeah. attachment. And so it gave not just me, but it gave both of us the freedom to sit there and say, well, you know, we don't actually need our jobs. It's, it's not just that we don't need to worry about what's next, but because, you know, we're both, uh, we've had long careers in finance. Uh, you know, we, we've been able to build right. up, you know, a comfortable nest egg uh, so that if we said, you know, we're not going to work for a few years, we, we have the luxury of doing that. Yeah. And I appreciate you saying that because, I mean, you know, this is an interesting moment, right, where there's been, as you mentioned, huge layoffs and um, many may not have had that forward planning that you had, right, to be able to think yeah. about, you know, let's ensure that we're in a good place at any point so that we can make these choices. And I think that's an important conversation that we don't actually have, mm. right? We talk about how to succeed in our careers, uh, but not about setting ourselves up to be able to take risk as well. Because uh, mm. looking at your career, you were able, because you had that cushion, to think outside of the box, to give it a little bit of time and not jump into situations that may not work for you. You know, one element is that, you know, there's so many people I know, particularly having worked on the investment banking side and the finance side, you know, they develop a certain lifestyle that makes them incredibly mm. fearful of giving up a lucrative paying career. Yeah. You know, so, you know, the the senior investment bankers I know who hate their jobs, but, you know, they've developed such a lifestyle that, you know, they can't leave. You know, they're, they're living Absolutely. life on the large and, you know, they've probably bought really nice houses, nice cars. You know, they're putting their children through incredibly nice uh, private schools. And so they need to maintain that lifestyle uh, out of necessity. Yeah. You know, I think right. my wife and I, in addition to not having kids, I, I think we learned the value of living within our means. So let's get back to your career. I mean, after a long career in banking, you then shift over to uh, work in retail to work with some <laughs> of the big brands, American brands, right? Apple and Microsoft in real estate, retail real estate. Talk to us a little bit about that chapter, what you learned from it, you know, and especially with the moment being fresh out of uh, 2007 where the iPhone was launched, you know, what was interesting about your two stints there? Yeah, no, so I'll I'll say my my actual, my first job in retail was uh, with a Thai company, uh, you know, a a multi-format retailer Mm. called the Central Group. So, you know, they they did everything. They did department stores, shopping malls, uh, supermarkets, big box, you know, bookstores, sporting goods. You know, it's literally take every major dominant retail format in, say, the U.S., and put it all in one company. And that's what they were. And so and it was an interesting right. experience because I didn't know the first thing about retail when I got recruited. Uh, and to be honest, I hate shopping and I largely still do. <laughs> well, no, I, I shouldn't admit that. Uh, you know, I, yeah. but I, you know, I'm, I, I don't, you know, for me, retail is not therapy. You know, I, I go into a right. mall, I know exactly what I want. I buy it, I leave. 
So, but I was recruited by actually a former MBA classmate of mine who had mm. joined the central group as the newly uh, appointed head of strategy. And, you know, she'd come from McKinsey, but her mandate, in addition to strategic initiatives, included international expansion and M&A and joint ventures. And so she needed an investment banker mm-hmm. type. And I had left the industry saying, I just don't want to be on the sell side anymore. I don't want to, you know, work for banks and try and, you know, haggle clients for fees that they owe us. And so she said, you know, do you want to join on the corporate side and, you know, expand this retail brand across the region, which sounded quite interesting to me. You know, I was, I would be working with a friend that, you know, was probably one of the smartest people I knew. So for me, that was my foray into retail. And after about a year and a half, the, the, the group CEO asked if I would move to China. You know, they wanted to open up department stores mm-hmm. and build shopping malls in China. And, and frankly, no one in the company wanted to go. You know, it's like, we don't have any contacts in China. So it was literally, you know, it would literally be me taking a suitcase and a bunch of business cards and trying to establish a presence. It, it, it felt like being a salesperson opening up a territory, which it, it was. Yeah. Remind us what year this was. As well, just in terms of you know the expansion of China and when you came in. Yeah, so I you know I I had joined Central Group in 2004, and they got so sick of me that they mm. banished me to China in 2005. And so this was I, I think this is just as some of the international retailers were starting to make a presence in China. So you know in the earliest days mm. of internationalization of retail in China, the most successful brands were on either end of the spectrum. It was either the ultra luxe brands like Louis Vuitton and, and Hermes and Chanel, or it was on the other end. It would be, you know, the fast fashion brands like, you know, Zara and, and H&M. And I think all the brands in the middle mm-hmm. that were kind of middle market was just struggling. So I, I was with Central at the time. You know, it was largely state-owned. The majority state-owned department stores. Uh, there were a couple of international ones going in, like Parkson out of Malaysia. They were, they were building out across China. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think a handful of the European department stores were there, but it was still state-owned retail. Mm-hmm. Uh, most of the malls were state-owned uh, right. developers. And then you had folks like Capital Land out of Singapore going in, uh, some of the Hong Kong developers. And this is an interesting construct, right? You're a Thai Chinese American guy, doesn't really speak the language, looking to bring this brand into China where the market is just opening up, but still finding itself. Um, what was challenging about that work there and, and what was uh, surprising, I guess? I mean, everything was challenging. I mean, it, it, so I think I would say probably by <laughs> 2005, I had sort of developed that level of curiosity and you know fearlessness that you, know, you had alluded to earlier. So what wasn't there mm. at the beginning of my career, by, 20, by 2005, you know, I was ready to go into the deep end uh, in a market I didn't know, in a language I didn't know, and in an industry that was, you know, you, you had so many international brands piling into the China market. Right. It literally became a land rush. It was every international mm. retailer scrambling for prime locations in the best malls uh, at a time when there were very few grade A malls in China. So it really felt like a gladiator pit. Uh, and those that survived emerged stronger. Uh, you know, that was the way it was for mm. retailers in, in 2005. And so, you know, for me to, you know, compete with uh, some of the most aggressive real estate executives running around China trying to, like, negotiate for real estate, 
And that was the situation yeah. I found myself three years later in 2008 when, you know, Apple hired me away from Central and said, you know, we, we want to open up, you know, these big Apple flagships across Asia, specifically China. And they wanted someone that knew the Chinese market, but also was American enough to understand the Apple ethos, to understand the product, uh, yeah. to be able to understand the history. So they needed actually someone that was in between the Chinese culture uh, and the Apple culture, you know, someone who understood how Americans think, but could kind of translate it and negotiate yeah. it with, you know, a Chinese landlord or a Chinese government official. Yeah. And is there something, I mean, that you can share with us with regard to your learning on just that intersection, right? And why I'm thinking about this is, of course, as we know, uh, U.S.-China tensions are on its all-time high right now. But of course, for people who are in Southeast Asia, these are two important markets and, and in general as well, right? In expansion markets. Uh, what did you learn about working together between the two, you know, uh, cultures? And the one thing I've learned is that, it, you know, I think from the outside, it's very easy to see China as this one monolithic culture. You know, there is a unified culture, but there's no single, I, I never felt that there was a single Chinese way of doing business or a single Chinese way of negotiating because mm -hmm. every person is different. One day I would be negotiating with a landlord who is an extrovert and very friendly. Uh, the next day I'd, I'd negotiate with someone different who was an extrovert, but very, you know, direct and hostile. Uh, the third day I would negotiate with someone who's an introvert. As many different personalities as there are Chinese people, just as there are with Americans. And so once you do that every day, you start to think of China as not just, you know, a country of, you know, faceless 1.3 billion people, but you, you treat, you start to treat everyone individually with a certain level of respect and individualism that they deserve. Just as, you know, I don't want to be seen as just sort of that ugly American. You know, I have, you know, my own motivations, my own style. And nuances, uh, right, is what you're getting at. Yeah, nuances. absolutely. What would be your, I guess, a lot of uh, folks who are looking to expand their business in, in both markets, right? Um, what would you say to them? Like, what would be your biggest lesson, you know, the hardest lesson that you learn in market expansion? I would say that you need to invest in, uh, you need to invest time into understanding the market and developing mm -hmm. the relationships. I, I think it was very easy for not just retailers who were looking at the Chinese market, but even startups I worked with that were jumping in the Chinese market and, and they read all the reports, right? You know, they'll read, you know, some McKinsey report or they'll read you know, some HSBC report and they'll look at the numbers and they feel like they have an understanding of China. And then they'll hire some right. well-paid, well-connected on the ground consultant to, you know, do things for them, but not spend time on the ground, not spend time developing relationships with key stakeholders. And mm. I, I think every company that I saw underinvest their time uh, in China mm. definitely did a lot more poorly than those that got to know uh, folks on the ground in China. You know, I, I think when Apple hired me, uh, they actually wanted to place me in Hong Kong. And I said, you know, if, if you want me based in mm. Hong Kong, I will not take this job because you are setting me up for failure because I need to compete with brands that have teams on the ground 24-7 in China. And right. if I am not on the ground 24-7, yeah. I am out of the loop. 
Now let's jump to the next chapter. After some time in retail, you are then recruited to start a CVC, a hundred million CVC unit and a copper venture capital unit. Talk to us a little bit about that. You know, where was uh, Siam Commercial Bank at that point in time? What was the copper venturing landscape that you and I were in at that mm. time as one? What were your learnings? I'll preface that by talking for a minute or two about what happened in between, because it actually wasn't a straight line. Okay. Um, <laughs> I, I I left Apple after about four years. You know, I'd opened up a bunch of stores for them uh, across the hemisphere: uh, China, Hong Kong, Japan, Australia. You know, I I was pretty burnt out. I you know I'd left actually a, you know maybe about nine months a year after Steve Jobs passed away. So you know by that time the the culture、mm-hmm. was changing. I was completely brain fried at that point. You know, I think. When I joined Apple, they were smaller than Microsoft. When I left Apple, they were the largest tech company in the world. So a lot of my,、uh, a lot of the restricted stock that I gotten had kind of taken off. So you know, I just reached a point in my life where I felt like I can kind of take a little bit of time off.、Uh, and, and my wife was at the height of her banking career at the time. So all the signs said, you know, take a little bit of time off. Don't stress out about things.、Uh, so I left Apple and. You know, not long after that, I was actually approached by Microsoft to work as a consultant to them because they wanted to roll out Microsoft、mm. stores in China at the time, and they were actually poaching a lot of ex-Apple retail staff. So, to be honest, it was a very cushy gig.、Uh, it didn't require a whole lot of hours. It was、uh, a very lucrative consulting engagement, and so I had a lot of free time, which is how I kind of got pulled into angel investing. You know, I, I knew a, a lot of folks、mm. uh, in the VC and startup community in China,、uh, predominantly, you know, William Balbine from SOSV, who you know was running one of the large angel groups in China at the time. And so he kind of said, "Why don't you join us? Take a look at startups, mentor startups、uh, in his programs." And, and that's how I kind of got pulled in. So my last year and a half in China was kind of a soft landing from these really rough and tumble jobs where. Consulting on the、mm. side, startups, angel investing, so that by the time I returned to Thailand in 2015, you know, I was still generally not working for a living. I was working, but mostly advising, mentoring startups,、uh, getting to know the Thai、sure. startup ecosystem because I didn't know anything. I'd been away from Thailand、mm. for ten years, and so over the course of the year, I was just kind of integrating into the Thai ecosystem. And that brings me to Siam Commercial Bank. So in 2016, that's when fintech just became the hot topic in the tech space, particularly、yeah. Southeast Asia. You know, blockchain was just starting to appear on you know the radar for a lot of fintech investors. And so what was happening in Thailand it was you know the formation of a number of corporate adventuring、uh, units in Thailand. Up until 2016,、mm-hmm. it was really only the telcos that were doing anything tech-related, mostly because、right. you know startups were you know on mobile and there were blocking apps. But you know, not a lot of non-telcos were in the game for a number of years. And then four banks in Thailand all started corporate venturing units within about a year of each other、uh, because of the explosion of interest、mm-hmm. in fintech. Siam Commercial Bank was the first、mm-hmm. up to bat. They were looking to build a corporate VC team, and because there was no VC industry in Thailand at that point, they needed to look, you know, for non-venture capitalists. You know, they they needed to look in investment banking, 
They need to look at business development executives. They need to look at strategy consultants, you know, anything but VC because there were no Thai VCs at the time. You know, I just sort of came across the radar of the gentleman that was tasked with forming the corporate innovation unit, the Science Commercial Bank. You know, he heard my name through the ecosystem uh, and he was uh, a well-known executive in Thailand. So when I got his message, my wife said, oh, you absolutely need to talk to him. He's, he's very well known in marketing spaces. <laughs> and so I, I went to go talk to him. Uh, and, and this is this is always a, a funny story because, you know, when when he called me in, you know, the, this gentleman was sort of presenting this 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 unit. You know, it, it was it was called Digital Ventures. It would be a venture builder, a startup accelerator, and a corporate venture capital fund. And they were, this is their grand vision. He spent 15 minutes telling me all about what SCB wanted to do, and I spent a few minutes telling him my background and and what I'd been doing in the Thai ecosystem. And up to that point, I thought he was actually just recruiting mentors for the accelerator. So, you know, because, you know, it's like as soon as I heard accelerator, it's like, oh, you know, new accelerators, they probably need about a dozen, two dozen, you know, just random people to mentor the startups. And so after him talking for 15 minutes, me talking for about 10, I said, well, now that you know what I've been doing, how would you like to work together? And he just flat out said, we'd like for you to run the venture capital fund. And I'm sitting there like completely nonplus, like, whoa, okay. Never done VC, much less have run a venture capital fund. And he said, but, you know, you've done international investment banking, you've done angel investing. And I said, sure, but those aren't exactly the same as running a venture capital fund. You know, you know that, right? And he's like, yeah, we know, but that's still, you know, you had international experience, you've worked with startups. Um, And so at that point, I just gave it a moment's thought and I said, well, you know, I'm not really doing anything at the moment. So sure, why not? You know, I'll run your venture capital fund. Paul, this is really fascinating because when I tell people about just where the VC ecosystem was and and is and still is growing in in Southeast Asia, people are almost dumbfounded because, you know, some of the challenges that we have in America is with emerging managers, for example, is that not everyone uh, has had the opportunity, a point of privilege to be able to gain the track record to be in the VC game, which of course, as we know, or many of us do know, VC started really as a cottage industry in many ways, right? That has developed into this thing. Uh, But in Asia, the opportunity was for many individuals like you who didn't have that exact experience, but there was already that open-mindedness, I would say, which I really admire of, hey, these are transferable skill sets. He doesn't have a direct track record, but he has all of these things, which I think would be beneficial if we actually bring a, a sliver of that thinking to address some of the structural issues that we have today with emerging managers, you know? No, and you're, you're absolutely right. Because if you think about where the life cycle of the startup ecosystems have been in Southeast Asia, you know, if we think about the venture capital and startup ecosystem, say in Silicon Valley, you know, it, it's, it's incredibly well-developed. It's been around for, you know, the startup ecosystem in Silicon Valley has been around since the 1930s, the VC ecosystem, maybe a decade or two right. younger than that. And so it's very mature. You know, you're looking for venture capitalists that have you know, an extensive network of executives that they could hire into portfolio companies. You know, they need to find, you know, uh, they need to have an extensive network of later stage VCs that they could, you know, tap for follow-on funding and so mm-hmm. on. But if we look at, you know, the startup ecosystem in Southeast Asia, you know, a lot of it is still first-time founders. You know, w- right. we don't have a lot of late-stage companies. We're not, we, you know, we're not flooded with IPO candidates. You know, what startups need is folks that have operational experience, 
that have you know the ability to form partnerships uh, with potential corporates that can expand into markets. So the skills required in a VC is not necessarily as a venture capitalist. It, it might be as an international mm-hmm. expansion executive. It might be as a corporate development executive. It might be building a sales function. So it's it's really getting mm-hmm. into you know what are the functional skills that early stage startups in markets where it's predominantly you know first time entrepreneurs you know and, yeah. and that requires a different skill set in their VCs than in a developed market. Yeah, and Paul, clearly you started uh, one of the first few corporate venturing arms with digital ventures, had a hundred million, uh, which not which is not something to sneeze at. What was your approach then, right? You had really no venture experience and you were tasked with this big challenge uh, to actually make a mark and, and love to hear your thoughts. And also, you know, uh, was that investing from the balance sheet? Did that work? What do you think of corporate venturing then now? After the gentleman, uh, the SCB executive recruited me, you know, the questions that I'd asked is, okay, you know, how, how big is the team? And he said, well, you don't have a team yet. You know, you're, you'd be the first person. You have a headcount you could bring on. <laughs> Four you're people, it. but you're it right now. And I said, okay, so what is the investment mandate investment strategy? And he said, well, the bank is hoping that you tell us what it should be. And so I said, what's mm. my KPIs? And he said, well, we're hoping you tell us what they should be. So I'm like, wow, this is literally, you know, a blank slate. You know, it's literally just build an organization from the ground up. He said, you know, right now, you know, we've already legally formed the entity. And you have the, you know, you have the investment corpus, you know, you, you have the dry powder, uh, you just need to do everything else, including develop an investment process. You know, they, they kind of know who's going to be on the investment committee, but they don't know how the process should be on, you know, screening deals and how it gets promoted to an IC, an investment committee. So I, I literally had to architect a, a VC operation from the ground up. Uh, and again, not even just a corporate VC fund, but a corporate VC fund that was regulated by the Bank of Thailand because I was working right. for a bank. And so, you know, the challenges were first, you know, recruiting that team, then developing that investment mandate, then in- develop, developing the investment process. And then once we had all that, then actually mm-hmm. get out into the world uh, and start looking for deals. And so, um, you know, I, I would probably say the most important thing that was, you know, the number one priority is to start recruiting. You had a fascinating approach in building your team. And, you know, I, I always um, say one thing that I, I love about you is is that you really take each platform that you have seriously and think about mm. the different ways in which you can create impact, not just for the business itself. Can you tell us a little bit about how you thought about building your team? And and also, you know, I, I guess the key successes and what you felt were failures in your corporate venturing chapter. Mm. No, I, I, that, that that's a great question because I think, uh, you know, I mean, looking back, I could see that the portfolio I built over the four years was incredibly uh, successful for SCB. Um, you know, the returns were really great. Unfortunately, as a corporate, you know, I got a great salary and bonus, but no carry. So um, great for SCB, not so bad for me. But, uh, and again, so much of that as a first time VC uh, was because I just had a great team. And so, you know, because I, I, I had an initial headcount of four, uh, it meant that I had the luxury of spending an incredible amount of time looking and recruiting for each person on that team. 
And, you know, I, I actually had about two months before I was going to be joining the bank from the time I got the offer. But the bank allowed me to use the SCB name to start approaching potential candidates that I would recruit. So I actually had two full months of recruiting time before I would start at the bank. And so I put in, um, you know, so for me, I, I knew going in that I would start out with two senior positions, principals, so kind of VP, you know, vice president level, and then two junior level, you know, kind of associates. So I wasn't looking for fresh college graduate, but, you know, maybe someone who was relatively young in the investment side, but still had a little bit of work experience. So it would be two and two. But the really important thing is that I knew that I was going to hire two men, two women. You know, I wanted a very diverse team, uh, both from a gender perspective, as well as an international perspective, and definitely in terms of kind of personality and thought process. You know, I wanted kind of a really eclectic team. You know, the gender side was quite important because, you know, for me, you know, I, I, I'd actually done a lot of work on women's empowerment in a lot of my philanthropic work. You know, it was uh, something that was quite important to me. And, and also, you know, I just felt that, you know, an ecosystem that wasn't um, leveraging the power of its female entrepreneurs was, you know, really kind of a bit hamstrung. This thought process, you speak as though it's like, yeah, it's it's a normal thing. This is the right thing to do. It makes business sense. But you and I know because of our work uh, in, in, in your later chapter where we do this together, we are still not surprised that people still ask us about what the benefits are of having diversity. So where did, you know, this was long before I think we actually worked on this topic together, but huh. you already had this mindset of, yeah, diversity makes business sense. Where, where does this come from? For one, you know, I, I have a very strong mother, you know, just very, you know, larger than life, you know, very driven mother who was quite good at what she did. Um, you know, she worked in the medical profession. Uh, and then I was also married to a very strong assertive uh, woman who was at the top of her field in corporate banking. Uh, And interestingly enough, the team that she built was probably more women than men. Uh, And they were very Mm. high flying, overachieving, incredibly accomplished, uh, you know, banking professionals. Uh, And, you know, to be frank, you know, the, the Thai banking profession actually has a significant proportion of women uh, in its ranks both on the commercial mm-hmm. banking and, and the investment banking side. So, you know, working in Thailand, it was, you know, it, it was just a very obvious visual thing to see that um, women were in very strong, dominant, accomplished positions in the finance and investment space. Uh, and, and interestingly enough, the same goes for strategy consultants in Thailand. So, you know, mm-hmm. companies like McKinsey, BCG were staffed with some phenomenal women up and down the management ranks. And so it's one of those things where even by necessity, if I wanted to build a team, a new team of venture capitalists in a market where there is no VC industry, I would be looking at banking and consulting as my natural talent pool. And those are industries that have a really good gender balance. So for me, it was, you know, I'm Mm -hmm. looking at the entire pool of talent, but I also recognize that if we wanted to build that kind of gender diversity, in the startup ecosystem, that it would probably help that if uh, the person making the financial decisions on the other side of the table of the entrepreneur was a mix, it wasn't yeah. all you know male VCs. And so 
you know, I, I wanted that level of diversity. I also recognized that, you know, um, women, and I don't want to paint too broad of a paintbrush, but women may look at risk and opportunities in a different perspective than men, just because of their lived experiences. And so, you know, I, I did not want to build a team that was prone to consensus as a lot of times they are in Asian markets, you know, I mean, uh, the ties, you know, they dislike conflict, they love consensus. And I actually wanted a team that would, I don't want to say fight, but I, I, I wanted a team that would uh, not shy away from vigorous debate. debate and discussion when we evaluate investments, because I do believe in the wisdom of crowds. Mm. And the wisdom of crowds is based on diversity of thought, uh, different viewpoints. And so the important thing for me is how do I build a team of four people plus myself that all thought very differently, who would not be afraid to argue with one another on a deal? And, and again, this is important in Thailand where traditionally in a lot of organizations, the women tend to be differential to the men. The younger people tend to be dif- differential to the older executives. I wanted a team where the most junior person on my team would not be afraid to stand up to one of my opinions, especially if that junior person was right. a woman. And mm-hmm. I think I was able to do that. And I think because of that, uh, we were able to screen out a lot of bad deals. We were able to make a lot of really great investments. You know, mm-hmm. on you know, we, we actually didn't, you know, I think a lot of VCs like to say, oh, we, we saw 3,000 investments a year and we found like the three that we wanted. I hate that. You know, I don't want to work that hard. Yeah. I want to see 500 <laughs> investments. I don't want to be, I don't want to be a machine gun. I don't want to be an Uzi. I want to be a sniper yeah. rifle. I want to pick and choose what mm. we go after very carefully and then just be incredibly discerning in what we do. And, you know, mm. when we analyzed what we did compared to other funds, you know, we saw a lot of our peers, they would look at four or five, six times the number of investments in a year than we would. We would make the same number of investments at the end of the day, and we wouldn't, you know, we wouldn't in any way underperform. We would either perform just as well, or in some cases better. So, you know, it was that whole mm. sort of uh, cliche about working smarter instead of harder. Yeah, which is a great line if you're lazy like me. You know, it's like I just want to work smarter. I just don't want to work harder. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, so I mean, I, I think a lot of the work that I did was just making sure that we had a really diverse uh, team. Uh, and, and again, I think. Mm. I honestly feel that the women uh, that were on the team, both at the start, but over the years that I ran the fund, were just truly amazing executives. They were... Now hold that thought. Talking to Loud, hosted by Chris Savage, is brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. On this podcast, Chris Savage, Wistia CEO and loudest talker, takes you inside the minds of entrepreneurs as they share the hilarious, informative, and most challenging aspects of building more human brands, everything we love here at Billion Dollar Moves. Now, an episode I loved recently was the one with guest Joe LeMay, jiu-jitsu loving entrepreneur and co-founder of rocket boat he talks about how an airplane epiphany took him on a wild ride that started with a shark tank flop but ended with a 50 million dollar exit you know that's our jam listen to it talking too loud wherever you get your podcast phenomenal investors not, not only had a really great eye for investment but they had a really uh, you know there were a number of members on my team who were really great at building a rapport with our entrepreneurs, as well as the fund did on a return basis, I, I do feel like building 
uh, diverse teams and training, you know, a fairly sizable cohort of not just young VCs, but especially female VCs that are now achieved a level of seniority in our industry. I think that's probably the best thing that came out of my uh, SCB experience. Hmm. Thank you. Thank you for saying that. Um, and that brings a great segue into your next chapter, which I know was unexpected as well with Shannon pulling you in. But another VC knocked on your door while you were thinking you were going to have a bit of a sabbatical after your time at SCB. Tell, tell us about that and how you got down this rabbit hole of gender, ESG. You know, where's ESG today in Asia? Are we actually walking the talk or is it a lot of uh, greenwashing, as we've seen before, you know, where, where are we, Paul? Yeah. So I, I left SCB actually just before the pandemic hit and we all went into lockdown. So by the time we, the world went into lockdown, I was already spending a lot of time at home eating, you know, whatever was delivered by Food Panda and spending a lot of time online. Instead of learning how to surf or bake bread, I was actually just taking online courses to kind of understand, you know, what sustainability was, what ESG was. Uh, you know, at the time, I didn't have any thought about it being the next stage of my career. It was just an area of strong personal interest to me. You know, I wanted to understand, you know, ESG from a risk management perspective. I wanted to understand sustainability from, you know, not just a business and buzzword perspective, but I wanted to understand the different economic models behind it, the frameworks, even kind of the science behind, uh, you know, things like climate, understanding the history of like, you know, gender inequality, racial inequality. So really getting down into almost an academic, you know, college master's level of uh, understanding these issues. And so I was doing that for a number of months. So, you know, it, was, it probably was a sabbatical because I was doing it for the greater part of about uh, six, seven months. Uh, and then, you know, I got a call from, uh, you know, a dear friend, Shannon Kalyanamit, was the uh, Bangkok-based partner for Gobi Partners. Um, you know, she had come from the entrepreneur side and moved over to the VC side uh, after she had exited her startup. You know, a lot of her personal interest in VC was around gender diversity, just because she had been on the receiving end. You know, she had lived experience as a female entrepreneur, and, and she knew. You know, Gobi was looking to develop an ESG practice. You know, they wanted uh, you know Gobi as a company, but also their portfolio companies to start thinking about you know the types of risks that an ESG framework would cover. And so she had called me up and said, "Would I be interested in?" working with Gobi on, uh, you know, building a practice, launching initiatives, um, sort of developing content and education and general awareness on ESG, you know, both within Gobi, but also within the broader Southeast Asian uh, tech ecosystem. And so, you know, for me, I jumped at the chance just because it was an opportunity to, you know, sort of stay in the, the startup investment side, the venture capital side, but merge that with what was then a personal interest and now professionalizing, you know, the work that I've been doing and the study I've been doing in ESG and, uh, you know, sustainability. And, you know, what was interesting is, you know, once I came in, it was already, there was, there was already a bit of momentum behind ESG, but, you know, I'll, I'll say that in the year since, you know, I think the world has experienced almost every major calamity known to man, mankind or humankind, whether it was, global pandemic, supply chain disruptions, threat of nuclear conflict, um, 
you know, wildfires, floods, you know, uh, it's, it's literally, um, you know, catastrophes of biblical proportions and, you know, in a really weird sort of dark macabre sort of way, it's like, wow, this is actually proving the need for robust ESG risk management. I don't have to talk about environmental risk and social risk and governance risk because it's playing out as we go. Things like FTX. Now I get to point to the G side of governance. It's still a bit of a challenge because, you know, if we look at, say, North America or particularly the U.S., ESG has become highly politicized. Mm -hmm. Uh, In other places, Mm -hmm. you know, people will see um, ESG as more of a distraction rather than, you know, risk mitigation and risk management. In a lot of the work that I've done in ESG, particularly around gender diversity, you know, there are a lot of folks, whether it's, you know, entrepreneurs, whether it's LPs, other VCs that see investment diversity as, you know, a bit of a charity. You know, I think there's still that sort of myth that, okay, well, female entrepreneurs underperform, or if we invest in diversity, you know, we're, we're actually giving up, you know, um, basis points of investment return. Uh, and again, nothing could be further from the truth. So, so much of my work is really um, part of it is investment. But you know, before I can really engage wholesale and investment, it's a lot of education. It's, it's sort of telling people this is what gender lens actually means. I think there's a lot of misconception around it. Yeah. So, Paul, I mean, you know, you've spent a good amount of time in the last two years to work on on gender and ESG as a part of that uh, to roll that out into a venture firm together with with you know the other. Uh, parties within uh, Gobi. What would you say is your biggest takeaway there? I mean, it's not, I mean, we, we speak as though it's a normal thing, but really you and I know, right? So we at Beyond the Billion, we work with over 100, we're, we're close to 110 venture capital funds and limited partner investors. And whilst ESG is the talk of the day, I will say it's not as integrated in the way that you have thought about it. Um, how can venture funds do better in this space? You know, where I am in Southeast Asian ecosystems trying to promote ESG and sustainability, it feels like me being at the corporate venture fund at SCB, you know, uh, six, seven years ago, in that um, the one thing I took away from the corporate innovation experience was that it's not about the tech. Mm. You know, um, the tech is out there. Uh, it's not about, you know, proving that, you know, innovation is a good thing. Just like today, it's not about proving that, uh, you know, investment in diversity is a good thing or managing ESG risks is a good thing. Th- there's actually a lot of quantifiable evidence out there. The challenge is right. understanding it's overcoming, you know, it, it's changing culture and behavior. You know, there's a lot of just like in the early days of corporate innovation, there was a lot of resistance within companies towards doing anything different or innovative. Uh, and if I look at where things are today, you know, there's this sort of fundamental resistance to, you know, okay, you know, why do we need to start thinking about diversity in everything we do? Why do we need to spend so much time worrying about governance? Is that going to slow us down? Uh, it's all very cultural. And so even if the evidence shows that, you know, you, you probably, you know, increasing the health of the organization, you're enhancing investment returns. Um, so it's never technical. Mm. It's never financial. It's just, it's a cultural shift. Uh, and so a lot of my work is really just teaching both people in Gobi, portfolio companies, even, you know, broader folks in the ecosystem at large that, you know, here's why we should be looking at ESG. Here's why we should be looking at sustainability. 
Here's why they actually do pay off in the long run. Uh, here's how to actually do it. Yeah. And it's just, it's that cultural mind shift. And I think that's a lot of the work. And, you know, I think once that job is done, then it just becomes very easy. Then people just start scrambling, looking for investments in cool climate tech or amazing female entrepreneurs or, you know, LBTGQ or whatever the case may be. I'd love for you to share. I don't know. What was it? Because I, this is our work right in Beyond the Bill. And it's all about um, talking about gender diversity as a business case, so on and so forth. And, you know, I, I get pushed into the corner sometimes and asking questions like, oh, so do you think women are better? I have an answer to that, but I love to hear, you know, what was your biggest lesson in persuasion when you talk about culture, right? I, I believe that, right? It's when, when someone, there's a bit of a tipping point in which they then get it and it becomes like, yeah, of course, it makes total sense. But to get to that tipping point, especially with people who've, who've been so used to the, you know, the, the saying goes of, if it's not broken, why fix it? Status or my stature helps in a lot of ways in the sense that you know, if I, when I talked, when I was promoting innovation to a corporate, by the time I was with SCB, I had been on both the corporate side, I'd been on, you know, the investment side, I'd done some work with startups. So, you know, I'm not going in saying, you know, hey, I am on the other side of the fence, you know, I'm trying to change your mind. Uh, you know, I'm saying, you know, I'm trying to say I've sat on your side of the fence. I've sat on both sides of the fence. Uh, and the same thing when it comes to mm -hmm. diversity, it's, it's, you know, I've had female subordinates. I have reported to phenomenal female bosses. I've worked on teams with all men. I've worked on teams where I was the only male. So I've seen from every perspective. Uh, and, you know, and again, I think to your question, you know, you know, I, it's not for me, male versus female. It's always about diversity. And even now that I'm on the sustainability side, you know, I, I, I try to remind people that, you know, I'm not I'm not here as, you know, tree hugger trying to do charity. You know, I, I come from an investment <laughs> banking side. I studied finance as an MBA. Mm. I believe in profitability. I am a capitalist. Uh, but, you know, I, I bring kind of that other side of, of the fence. So, you know, uh, you mm. know, for me, it's it's not about, oh, you should deny who you are, come to my side of the fence. It's, hey, you know, we both have the same sort of viewpoints, the same sort of backgrounds, but let me show you things from a slightly different angle or even a more expansive angle and why that makes sense. Yeah. So, so it's empathy in, in a large way, right? Seeing the other side of the coin and trying to bring that together. So we've, we've covered a lot of ground, Paul, and we're at this point where you're looking ahead into your next chapter. What next? What do you do now when you've done almost everything? Oh, no, no. Trust me. There, there's so many things that, that can be done. You know, the world is my oyster. Yeah, no. So, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll talk about two different things. Um, you know, about uh, a little bit over a year ago, I, I went back to school to, uh, you know, uh, enter a doctorate program. So I'm pursuing my doctorate of business administration. So uh, even though I've been out of school for over 20 years, I'm now back doing it part time. So I'm still active in the venture capital space. But, you know, I wanted to go back to do a doctorate because I think I wanted to do the types of research that would enhance my work uh, around gender diversity, around climate, around sustainability, you know, all those sort of umbrella topics that fit under sustainability, um, but particularly gender, because that's that's the focus of my thesis at the moment. And, and that, that's that's really quite interesting for me because, you know, I, I hate to say it, but I, I am in my 50s. So the idea of going back to school, it generally, you know, I, I've said that I kind of overcome the fear of the unknown. Uh, I would probably say that was largely true until I decided to go back to school because then it's just like, 
while going back to school post 50, that was, it, I felt like the fears that I had in, in my twenties, you know, moving to Asia for the first time, but it's been a fantastic uh, journey so far and it's been very synergistic. Uh, and then, you know, probably the second aspect is, you know, I think by the time this interview will air, you know, I will have uh, left to go be partners uh, after a wonderful uh, two and a half year run. And, Really, the, the motivation for that is, you know, I, I deeply want to continue in the tech investment space. Uh, and Gobi has been a fantastic platform. But I'm really actually going deeper down some of these thematic rabbit holes. So one, uh, I spent a lot of time in the last year thinking about in climate tech. Uh, and that's an area where, you know, we're starting to see a lot of interest, investment, as well as sort of general political and economic and health and safety concerns around climate. So you know, that that is an area that I find very interesting, but also deeply in need of people coming in to solve problems. Uh, and I also want to continue deeper on, you know, promoting and advocating and investing in diversity in tech. And again, right now, that's that's predominantly women because uh, women make up half of our population. But at some point in the future, also looking at other areas of diversity that probably also deserves some attention, whether it's racial diversity, whether it's, you know, uh, gender identity, whether it's physical ableism, all the different sort of um, participants in the tech industry that really are at the short end of the funding cycle and, and don't really get enough funding, but uh, are capable of phenomenal uh, product. Well, Paul, super excited for you and your next chapter. So in billion dollar move style, I will end quick questions and your quick responses. Okay. Are you ready for this to end on a high? Yeah, but I'm going to say I've, I've followed enough of your podcast to know that you ask the hardest questions that aren't prone to like super quick answers. You ask <laughs> very probing, probing questions. Okay. Money or power? I, I'm going to say power. And, and I'll say that, you know, because okay. I, I, I believe that, you know, there is both hard power and soft power. Uh, I do believe a, a lot in mm. soft power. And I think if you wield both well, money will follow. Hmm, good answer. What keeps you up at night still? You know, probably, you know, my wife taking up most of the bed. Um, no, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm sure all the married people listening in will understand that. You know, I get 30% of the bed space. Uh, yes. I think that's My just the laws of marriage. Yes. Yeah. Um, no, I, I would, I, you know, I, I would say not a lot, you know, I, I don't really feel a lot of anxiety about a lot of things. I, I'm at the point in my life where, you know, I, I've learned mm. to let go of a lot of stress. I meditate every day. Um, you know, I, I don't stress out about too many things to the point where I get anxious. But I would say if I think about um, the, the, the things I want to solve, it, it comes back down to, you know, how do we make the world a better place, both from a climate perspective, but also how do we make this world a better place for the other half of the population, the women that, you know, uh, you know, don't get the advancement opportunities, that don't get the equal pay, that, you know, are at the receiving end of gender-based violence. Yeah. So, and again, that's why, you know, I focus on the things I'd like to focus on. A moment you felt like giving up. Ooh, wow. I, I would probably, I would probably say it was uh, early on in my career after I dropped out of law school, you know, I moved to Asia mm -hmm. to, you know, kind of carve out some sort of career. You know, at the time I was drowning in grad school debt. I was making a very local salary in Thailand, which was 
enough for a really cheap studio apartment. You know, most of my income was going towards paying down my student loans. You know, my my parents were going through a very difficult economic time to the point where, you know, they had to declare bankruptcy. You know, it just felt like, you know, it was pressure from all corners. I was having issues with the girlfriend I was dating at the time. So literally my personal, professional family life was all in uh, a bit of turmoil. Um, And so, you know, giving, you know, it's not really giving up. You know, I I don't want to say that um, I was emotionally depressed or that I thought about, you know, things like, you know, suicide. But I I would say that I just felt like I I felt besieged and I didn't quite know what to do. and the thing is, I, it, there was no giving up. There was no, there's nothing to do for, but for me to just show up at work every day. But it was very difficult to see the light at mm. the end of the tunnel at the time. Good next question. What, what would you tell your younger self? I would tell my younger self to pay attention to the hierarchy of needs that many of us had learned in university, that, that sort of pyramid of things that motivate us in life. So, you know, we always at the base of that pyramid, food and mm. shelter, you know, and then we, we start moving to material wealth. We start moving towards, you know, validation. And then the top of the pyramid is self-actualization. And it, it sounds corny. It sounds hokey. But I've realized uh, over the course of my life that um, I spent the early years fixated on, you know, the career ladder, and achieving a certain title, achieving a certain level of income. Uh, you know, I, I, you know, I craved a certain amount of attention and validation, which is a lot harder in a social media world. Now it's like, it's even harder to, you know, not crave the likes, and the acknowledgement. But I, now that I'm kind of in the late, the latter half of my career, you know, I realized that um, it's less about, you know, the brand of company on your CV or resume. It's, it's less about your income. It's about waking up every day and feeling happy with what you're doing person that you know the people that you you love and finding personal happiness which may not necessarily be in a title on your business card you know i I, you know i I came to that realization that you know when i die i don't want my i don't want my gravestone to say uh you know paul really maximized return on investment you know that's not right you you, you realize that oh what will your lp say paul how dare you you know yeah it's like you know it's like the things that we feel that were so important early on uh, in our careers and lives we realize that you know it's cliche but it's it's really how do you find the things that, that that make you happy that wake you up in the morning uh and it may not necessarily be professional success uh it may it may not be uh, for yeah. some people, it may be the satisfaction of having kids. For others, like myself and my wife, it's it's you know we we love the fact that you know we, we don't have kids and we're we're doing other things. So I think happiness and success means different things to different people, and it's a question of finding what that is to someone rather than what society tells us uh, we should be happy over. Well, Paul, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me. It's always uh, great to hang out with you, whether it's, you know, on stage or in (laughs) D.C. over dinner or on a podcast interview. And thanks so much for tuning in this week. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and follow our socials on Sarah Chen Global to get the latest on the show. It would really help me out too if you enjoyed this to rate and review our show on Apple Podcasts and share your favorite episodes with a friend. I'm Sarah Chen Spellings and you've been listening to Billion Dollar Moves.